Amen. It's a joy to sing the gospel with you this morning, right? I appreciate your leadership out of you as well. Warning. Does, I didn't say good morning. I said warning. You're just conditioned. <clears throat> the opening line was warning. Clearly that word does not even get your attention anymore. And, and I say that because it seems just about everything comes with a warning. Just about everything we eat has a warning. If it's delicious, they have to warn you not to eat it. Every toy you buy your kid has a warning. Every change in the weather has a warning, a tornado warning, a red flag warning, a thunderstorm warning, a winter storm warning. You're from Oklahoma. You know when to take those warnings seriously and when not to. But even the things designed for our safety have a warning. The airbag in your car, it's there to save your life, but it has warnings all over it. The antibiotics or the prescriptions that you take, you take them for your health, but they're covered with warnings. And speaking of health, health, over the last several weeks, we've been consumed with warnings concerning a virus that is quickly spreading around the world. And sure, we ignore some warnings, like the box of Q-tips. It actually says on a box of Q-tips, warning, do not insert in your ear. <laughs> then what are Q-tips even for? <laughs> we ignore that warning. And maybe you don't think in these terms, but oftentimes the most loving thing you can do is warn, which means sometimes the most positive thing you can do is be negative. And that's where we are in the book of 2 Peter, because 2 Peter is filled with warnings. It seems like a negative book, but really it is not. And we've said that the main point of 2 Peter is this idea of knowing and growing, knowing the truth about Jesus Christ and growing in Christ-like character. And within that idea or under the umbrella of that main purpose, Peter says this in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter wants us to enjoy the certainty of our salvation. He wants us to know that we have obtained it. And what that knowledge does is it firmly establishes us so that we cannot be shaken by any temptation or any false teaching. This idea of stability is repeated in chapter 3, verse 17. As Peter draws this letter to a close, he, ad to a close, he admonishes Beware so that you are not carried away with the error of lawless men and that you lose your own stability. So Peter devotes his last will and testament to help us be firm and stable and unshakable in our faith. He writes so that certainty and stability walk alongside knowledge and growth in the life of the believer. And so just to review where we've been thus far, the way Peter helps us in this pursuit of certainty and stability is by reminding us about God's sure and very great promises to us. He assures us that if we trust firmly in these promises, most notably the, the promise of Christ's return that we've sung about this morning, if we trust in the, these promises, God's power will flow into us 
and enable us to escape corruption. That's what it says in verse 4. To grow in godliness, to have self-control, and ultimately to be people who love. There in verse 7. He reminds us that the source of these promises, the scriptures, that they did not come into being by the impulse of man, but by men, or excuse me, by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. And not only that, but we have this prophetic word made even more sure by the eyewitness experience of Peter who saw Christ's majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. In summary, the confirmation of God's word leads to confidence in his promises, which brings forth power for godliness in our lives, which gives us a personal experiential confirmation of our calling and our election. That is First Peter to this point, and that's pretty encouraging. Or excuse me, Second Peter. And now comes chapter 2. And with chapter 2, there's a very significant change in Peter's approach. And I say change in his approach, but not necessarily in his goal. His goal is still to make us firm and stable and unshakable in our faith, but his approach is now very different. As I said, chapter 1 is mainly an encouragement to live spirit-empowered lives of godliness and love. Chapter 2 is a warning against the false teachers and the destruction that will come to those who deny the Spirit's power. I like how John Piper describes it. He says, if chapter 1 is the carrot for the church... Chapter 2 is the crack of the whip over our heads, which is to say this is attention-getting stuff that we're walking into. And it's interesting, there are no commands, there are no admonitions, there are no imperatives of any kind in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is not telling you what to do. What it's telling you, what it's giving you, is a pure, somewhat terrifying description of what will happen to false teachers and those who fall prey to their error. And so today we'll look at the first three verses of the chapter, and then Mark is going to unpack the details that follow in the weeks to come. So if you're not in 2 Peter chapter 2, go ahead and turn there. I'll begin reading in verse 1, read down to verse 3. The title of this morning's message is A Portrait of False Teachers. Chapter 2, verse 1, inspired of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not is not asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Now let me remind you that the chapter headings and verses in your English Bibles were not a part of the original manuscripts. Those numbers were added later to make your Bibles easy to use and easy to reference. And you can see this here because the idea Peter is explaining at the end of chapter 1 flows just right into chapter 2. And so it does that with the help of that coordinating conjunction, but. That word but is used there to to contrast the divinely inspired ministry of the true prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, who spoke for God. That's how chapter 1 ends. And then it contrasts with these false teachers that were of the devil. That's how chapter 2 
starts. And what I just read is a small portrait of the false teachers that have infiltrated the churches. Before telling us what their fate is going to be, which is where this chapter is headed, Peter first tells us, here's what they look like. He shows us their mugshot, you might say. If these three verses would be what was printed on the most wanted poster of a false teacher. And so I've broken that description into four categories. Their meddling, their message, their morality, and their motivation. Let's begin with their meddling. It is pervasive, which means they've always been around, always. Where the text says false prophets also arose among the people, Peter is talking about the past. He's talking about, in the history of the nation of Israel, throughout their existence, false prophets have plagued the people of God. In Deuteronomy 13, in the Mosaic Law, you can read an outline of how to distinguish and how to deal with a false prophet. If you read the book of Jeremiah, particularly chapter 23, and listen to to God's prophets speak about the false prophets in Israel who were leading the people astray... I'll just read a couple of verses from that chapter. Chapter 23, verse 14. It's written, Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He goes on, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. See the contrast there between what Peter has written at the end of chapter one. These prophets speak from their own imagination. It's the exact language he used of the false teachers being described at the end of chapter one because Scripture, a word from God, is ultimately brought by the inspiration of the Spirit, not the mind of man. He goes on, Jeremiah does, in chapter 6. He says, the false prophets were saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They, They were not telling the truth. Judgment was coming. Jeremiah knew it. This was not a peaceful time. But they were telling the people what they wanted to hear. The people of Israel were so deceived and so won over by the false prophets that the true prophet, Isaiah, he says the people went to the false prophets and and listen to what they said. They said, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words and prophesy to us illusions. They wanted to be lied to. That's the way it was. And Peter not only knows that Old Testament history, but I think he was also thinking in writing these words, he was thinking of the time of Jesus. Even the time in which Peter was living, false prophets, they dominated Judaism. Peter would have remembered the Sermon on the Mount, that sermon from Jesus recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. In chapter 7, the words of Jesus in verse 15, he said, Beware of the false prophets who are coming to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Jesus saying to the people, the false prophets are here. They're not just a part of our past, they're, they're here. They're labels we know. They are the Sadducees, they're the Pharisees, they're the scribes and the teachers of the law. They're not only wrong, but they're deadly. They are ravenous wolves. They're ferocious. They'll not only deceive you, they'll actually destroy you. 
And what makes them so dangerous is that they've come in sheep's clothing. What is sheep's clothing? Sheep's clothing is wool. Who would also wear wool? Well, shepherds would wear wool. Meaning false teachers don't come as false sheep. That's not the idea. They come as false shepherds. And so not only in the centuries of Old Testament Jewish life do these false teachers exist, but in the life of the time of Jesus, these false teachers have been around. Their meddling amongst the people of God has been pervasive. And so then Peter moves to the future. You look at the middle of verse 1. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. It's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. It was true among God's people Israel. It was true at the time of Christ. It will be true among you. Among you is the church. The people is Israel. The church is the you. And it's significant that Peter says that these false teachers will be among you because that same spirit-inspired language is found when the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders of this exact same thing in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. He says to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And that among you language is crucial to remember because what it tells us is that false teachers arise from within the church. That they're in the camp. They are a kind of fifth column in the Christian church. The expression, the fifth column, that was used first in a radio address by the Spanish nationalist general, a guy named General Mola. It was used during the Spanish Civil War, and as he was advancing toward Madrid, he said that he was coming with four columns of soldiers. And in saying that, he also said, but there was a fifth column inside the city that would rise up and would support him. And out of that came our expression, the fifth column. And the fifth column is a term we use to refer to any kind of support that is given in a subversive manner. So so the false teachers of whom Peter speaks here, they are subverts, they are subversive, they are fifth columnists, you might say. They're traitors to the truth of God, and they rise up in the midst of the faithful, and they pervert the teaching of Scripture. How do they do this? They do it with their message. That's our second point. Their message. Their message is destructive. Peter says in the middle of verse 1 that these false teachers, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The Greek word secretly introduce means to bring in from the outside. So these false teachers, they are, in the in, they are on the inside, they are among you, but they add concepts and ideas to the Bible, and they do that from the outside. And they give to those destructive concepts the same authority as Scripture. So to be clear, false teachers don't waltz in and announce, hey, you know, I've got some stuff to tell you guys that's completely erroneous and false. Listen up. They don't do it that way, no. With conviction, they introduce their erroneous teaching as if it's the real thing and then lead people to choose truth or choose error, I should say, over truth. Which that word choose 
is actually the original meaning of the word which shows up in our text. I'm talking about the word heresy. Heresy just means alternative or choice or variant. And the funny thing about the word heresy is that many in our world today think heresy is sort of just quaint and outdated. Contemporary people associate heresy with the time of the Middle Ages, like something you see in a Monty Python movie. They associate it with a time where people were just were, were burned at the stake for, for having views that disagreed with the church and the state, and those, at that time, entities were intentionally linked. I read a guy this week who said, we live in a day and age where the only heresy is to believe there is no such thing as heresy. And that is a fundamentally dangerous position, and I'll tell you why. And I'll just start with a better way to explain heresy. Heresy is the view of ultimate reality which is wrong and therefore bad for you. Heresy is a view of ultimate reality that is wrong and therefore bad for you. For example, you can believe that it's always raining in Australia, and that would be wrong, but probably not bad for you. You're incorrect. Your understanding of the weather in Australia doesn't necessarily, though, elevate it to the level of heresy. But your answer to questions like, does God exist? What do I believe about human nature? What is right and wrong? Where is history headed? What about life after death? Those are views of ultimate reality. And if you're wrong about your answer to those questions, then you're wrong about a lot of things. And that is ultimately going to be bad for you or harmful to you. And that is why heresies are destructive. Heresies are both ultimately destructive because if you believe the wrong things about reality, then you won't be in relationship with God, not now or ever. So they're ultimately destructive. And heresies are also presently destructive because what you believe about ultimate reality and how you live your life, those two things are inexorably linked. It's just like I told you in last week's message. There is nothing more foundational to how you live your life than how you view the Bible. The way you live your life pivots on what you believe about the Bible. If you believe the Bible is divinely inspired and authoritative, you will submit everything in your life to it. Because it's not the word of man, it is the very word of God. That's what Peter wrote in chapter 1, verse 21. Scripture is not from man's imagination or speculation. It's God's actual revelation of himself. And if you don't submit to Scripture, then you're going to submit to some other authority that won't be as good to you as Scripture. Because you don't have the actual autonomy to be an authority unto yourself. No one does. But maybe you know someone who, in a kind of in an artificial humility, says, I don't know what I believe about God. And let's just say that they've been stuck in that place, for, uh, that, that, that place of indecision for years and years and years. You know what that person is actually saying? They're saying, I really don't think it's critical to even know if I believe in God. So that person is a heretic, not only because they don't believe in the God of the Bible, they're a heretic because they don't even think it's important enough to come to a conclusion on the subject. So you see what I'm trying to explain in in too few words probably is that all theology is practical and all practice is theological. What you believe impacts the way you live. And if you believe the wrong things about who God is and how he has revealed himself and that you're accountable to him, that wrong view of reality, that heresy, you might say, 
is going to show up destructively in your life. And if that wrong belief is carried into a larger society of people, be it a church or a village or an entire nation, it's going to bring destruction there as well. Heresies are by nature destructive. When a choice is made to believe something about ultimate reality that is not true, it will have a destructive effect on people's lives. So therefore, what you believe about God, it may be good or it may be bad, but it will not be inconsequential. It's not like what you believe about the weather in Australia. Completely different categories. If what you believe about these ultimate questions are wrong or even unexamined, they will distort and they will twist your life. They are destructive. Let's get a little more specific on this. The text tells us a little bit about one of the heresies that these false teachers were propagating. It says that they even deny the master who bought them. So these Gnostic-influenced teachers denied the master, the Lord Jesus. They were denying either his divinity or his claims or perhaps his atonement, likely even all three. Whatever their precise heresy, they made Christ less than he really was. They denied his full deity with total sovereignty over this world and the universe. They didn't like it. They didn't want it. They denied it. Therefore, the whole matter of his lordship over their lives became irrelevant. And although these false teachers called themselves Christian, called themselves Christ followers, they denied the master because they would not subject themselves to him. False teachers will not make Christ their Lord, their God, their master, their king, because they have a total misunderstanding of who he is and what he came to do. That's what they're up to. The determining factor in evaluating any false teacher or group is drilling down and determining what they believe about Jesus Christ. That's, that's the tell. If you confront somebody that's in a cult, the first question to ask is, who is Jesus Christ? And then you just keep going after Jesus Christ. Tell me more about Jesus Christ. Is he the master? Is he the sovereign God? What about the cross? Is that the basis for forgiveness and redemption and nothing else? If not, all who follow those false teachings are bringing swift destruction upon themselves. John Calvin, he said, Heresy is a magnet to attract the unsound and unsettled mind. It's a magnet that attracts the unsound and unsettled mind. Perhaps your mind is unsettled today. And in its unsettled place, it just vacillates back and forth about who God is and what he's asked of you and the nature of Jesus Christ and what is the cross. In that place, you are still in a denial of Christ. Don't deny Christ. Don't deny who he is. Don't deny what he's done. Don't deny what's been revealed about him. Don't deny what he's accomplished through his resurrection and defeat of death and the grave. Do the opposite. Stand amazed at his presence. Stand amazed at him. Because he stood in your place. A sinner condemned and unclean because that is what you are. And in that place he stood, he exchanged your sin for his righteousness, taking your sin upon himself, giving you his own 
righteousness so that you might be in relationship with God forever. If you've never done that, if your mind is still unsettled, don't leave here a heretic today. Settle your mind. Look to Christ and put your trust in him. Let's get to the next point. Their denial of Christ's lordship feeds their immorality. Verse 2 shows us that their morality is seductive. It says that many will follow their sensuality. So these teachers garner a large following. Using today's terminology, we might say lots of people show up to their church or lots of people tune into their broadcasts. But they are successful for one reason, because they cater to the flesh. They do not preach against sin. They do not mention divine judgment or hell. They avoid truths like denying yourself or taking up your cross, truly following Christ. Rather, these teachers, they, they soothe people with, with uplifting thoughts about God's destiny for, for you and how he wants you to live your best life. If they ever mention the death of Christ, they say that he died for you because he believed in your great potential. Their message really is believe in yourself and ask God to help you fulfill the dreams you have for you. And people follow that kind of false teaching by the droves, and they do it because it feeds their pride. Paul says it tickles their ears. It's like the Geico commercial with the Pinocchio. You ever seen that one? The one that says, did you know Pinocchio was a bad motivational speaker? And the flash the scene to Pinocchio in a generic hotel conference room, and he's pointing at people around the room saying, you have potential, and you have potential, and meanwhile, his nose is growing. <laughs> These teachers are like that. They're just lying. And as the text point out, there's, there's always a connection between false doctrine and impure living. The, the text mentions their sensuality. Their teaching accommodates sensuality because their lives are characterized by sensuality. This isn't exclusively speaking of sexual sin, but it, but it is at least that. In our day, a teacher who endorses any manner of sensuality or any manner of people's fleshly desires, that teacher is going to be popular because our culture is filled with just unbridled fleshly desire. There's a famous story of a New York City couple who received through the mail two tickets to a smash Broadway hit. And oddly, the gift arrived to them without a note, and they wondered who had sent it, but they still attended the show, and they enjoyed it immensely. Returning to their apartment, they discovered that their bedroom had been ransacked, valuable furs and jewels were missing, and on the pillow was this simple note, now you know. Like that nameless thief, a false teacher knows what people want and he appeals to their desires. He claims he's going to enrich their lives, but those who follow him learn at a high cost that they have been deceived. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. False teachers with their bad doctrine and their immoral lives, they give Christianity a black eye. Because of them, people mock Christ and they blaspheme Christianity because these so-called Christian leaders who teach false doctrine and live immoral lives are so rampant. Many people are, are rightly turned off to, to true Christianity because of these hucksters and these charlatans. And I'm not just talking about the televangelists. 
It's, it's mainline Protestantism as well. Listen to this from a book that I read yesterday. It says, in the liberal seminaries around the world, young men and women are being told that Jesus is not God, that the Bible is a collection of myths and fables, that miracles do not exist, that the second advent is not going to happen. Each year, hundreds of young ministerial minds are being sent into liberal churches who have been trained in heresy in their seminaries. It's no wonder that the unsaved world has little or no use for the organized church. He goes on, I read recently about a liberal seminary that was teaching a course on the Apostles' Creed. They taught how the students could recite it, but not have to believe it. They were actually teaching them to lie. Such is the mind that leaves the Holy Scriptures as its authority. So what's their motivation? Last point. Their motivation is manipulative. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. To say it plainly, these teachers, they're in ministry for the money. They're, they're driving force of the teaching they provide, this enterprise they're a part of, it's not the love of the truth. It's not submission to the Lord. It's not even sexual immorality. They can do all of that from the pew. Their driving force is money. The word for greed here is embellished. It means uncontrolled greed. That's what they have. They're in it to accumulate money and watch them. They absolutely do. Verse 14 of this same chapter Chapter 2, it says, their, their eyes are full of adultery. They never cease from sin. They never submit to lordship. They, in, they entice unstable souls. Why do they do that? Because their hearts are trained in what? Greed. Their hearts are trained in greed. They're experts at it. They can con money out of anybody. They want money. They want your money. There's a Christian rapper, which I know might seem as a contradiction, but it's not. <laughs> There's a Christian rapper, a guy named Shai Lin. He's actually really good. Solid theologian. He has a song called False Teachers. He released it a couple of years ago. It was pretty controversial when it came out because he named names. But in one part of it, he says, you want to know what all false teachers have in common? It's called selfism, the fastest growing religion. They just dress it up and call it Christian. Don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. I almost had the flow going there, didn't I? <laughs> but that's spot on. I mean, that's good. That's right. Return to verse 3. The word false in that phrase, false words. It's from the Greek word plastos, which means we, we get our English word plastic from that. False teachers mold, bend, and stretch words to, to please their hearers. Warren Wiersbe, in commenting on these religious counterfeits in, in, in 2 Peter 2.3, he says, Plastic words, words that can be twisted to mean anything you want them to mean. The false teachers use our vocabulary, but they do not use our dictionary. It's good. They talk about salvation, inspiration, and great words of the Christian faith, but they do not mean what we mean. So they come along with fake arguments and plastic theology. It really isn't God's truth. It isn't inspired of the Spirit. It has no real authority. It isn't what the Bible says. It's molded to deceive you. And they're into immorality because 
They've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. He's not the Lord of their life, and they're in business. They're in the business to make money, to make themselves rich. They're dangerous. I actually think, just as an aside, this is why the primary place you should give your money is to your local church. Because when you give to your local church, you, you can monitor it personally. You can gauge and hold accountable the, the pastors who are, are leading that church and the theology that they're teaching, whether or not they've given themselves to greed. I'm not just telling you that to, to be self-serving in some way. I, I'm telling you that because I think it's a very valid point being made in this, in this, in this passage. Have you ever watched footage of when they want to take down an old skyscraper? I loved those as a kid. You know, engineers put dynamite at strategic places in, in the foundation, in the framework of the skyscraper, and they set it off, and, and the building just implodes in on itself. It's not surprising that, that Satan relentlessly tries to, to blow up the foundation of our faith, which is the word of God. He does it through false teaching. His first temptation of Eve in the garden was, did he really say it? Is that what he really said? There's an old saying, whenever God erects a house of prayer, the devil is sure to build a chapel there. So practically, how can you apply what we've looked at today? Three action points I'm going to give you, and we're going to be done. This, the second half of, of verse 3 really feeds into the rest of the chapter. So I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to let Mark use that as fuel to get into the rest of the chapter. But three practical things I think maybe you can take from this. Easy to remember. Stop, look, and listen. Stop. Just because someone is holding a Bible and smiling doesn't mean they're to be trusted. Stop. Look hard at what they teach. And if they're not in lockstep you know, with every second or third tier doctrine you hold, that doesn't mean they're a false teacher. But, but where they are on, on the big things, on the first tier areas, the Trinity, on Christ, on the virgin birth, on substitutionary atonement, on the authority of Scripture, on the physical and visible return of Jesus Christ... Again, on those ultimate realities, where are they? And if they're not in an orthodox, biblical position, don't go near them. Stop. And then look. Look at their life. Is it sensual? And maybe that doesn't mean it's marked by sexual sin, but it could. But do they model Christ-like values and Christ-like virtues? And, and do they point to Christ, or do they often point to themselves? Do you see accountability and transparency in their ministry? What do their followers look like? Look. Never be swayed by somebody's apparent sincerity. A private jet might be a red flag. And then listen. Listen to their words. Not only to what they say, but how they say it. Also, tune in to what they don't say. Tune into what they don't say. Often it's what they don't say that reveals what they really believe. Listen closely. False teachers are experts in, in nuance. Again, masters in plastic words that can mold their error into anything. Stop, look, listen. And live in the word. Best way to know a counterfeit is to know the truth. Live in the word and you'll spot error. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for this time together. And in talking about this subject, it's easy to think that we're being negative in this place today or narrow in today's terms. But God, our, our heart today together is to honor you, to be submissive to you, to exalt Christ, who you've revealed yourself to be and what you've shown us about your son through his person and work. Lord, we look to him today. We, we do not want to be a people denying Christ, but we want to be a people standing amazed in his presence. Lord, we look to him today as our only hope in life and death. If anyone is here that has not trusted in Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would, that they would do that. That they would stop trying to arrive at some novel idea or keen or enlightened teaching, and that they would just look to what you've given in, in your word and see it as from you and therefore authoritative for them. Lord, thank you for this time together. Encourage our hearts as uh, we leave this place and, and, and encourage one another in the, in the faith and take your gospel to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.